Ephesians 6. There's a really only, uh, in terms of directly addressing biological fathers, and I would say fatherhood in general, we really only have a, a verse directly relating. There's, it's, 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 it's uh, cousin is in Colossians. Uh, but here it is. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. To anger, some of your translations may say exasperate. Bring them up in the dis discipline and instruction of the Lord. Some may say in, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So we're going to try to unpack this a little bit this morning. Let, let's bow for a word of prayer. Look to the Lord for help this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the joy of being fathers. God, as has already been so expressed, we know what being a father is because it first existed in you. This is the the term that you have chosen for all of humanity to know you as a father. We're so grateful for that and demonstrates such mercy on our awful condition. You want us to know you as father and uh, we thank you for that. And I pray that as we meditate on some truths from the word of God this morning that fathers would be inspired in a day and age in which Fatherhood seems to be in decline, or manhood seems to be in decline. And Lord, we confess we haven't always been the fathers and the men that we should be. We certainly confess that there is much there that should be in decline. But Lord, the pieces and the parts that are true from the word of God, we want to maintain these things and get better at them and be encouraged. We thank you for it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've mentioned the idea of Happy Father's Day already. Um, I would argue uh, Happy Father's Day to all of the men in this room. And I say all. Hopefully by the end of our time together you'll understand why I say all the men in this room. I can make an argument from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Ephesians 3.14 in terms of the, the, the spiritual nature of of fatherhood, and we'll talk a little bit about that here this morning. So happy Father's Day. You know, some other things that need to be said by way of introduction is that the Bible makes it crystal clear that fatherhood, with all of its power, its influence, and responsibility, is the sole property of biological males. I could make that argument clear from Genesis chapter 1 uh, through 4. And there's only uh, one reality in there, and and, and God wants us to flourish, so he's created biologically to, to grow up into uh, the idea of fatherhood as men. However, I'd like to say this, that scripture affirms, too, that fatherhood is not necessary for a man to be happy. In other words, biological fatherhood is not necessary. Proverbs 3.18 tells us that wisdom makes happy, and you can have wisdom apart from being a father. Proverbs 29, 18 teaches that obedience, in fact, is what makes happy. Happy as an emotional state. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 22 tells us that our activities can make us happy. That's a blessing. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14 tells us that prosperity makes happy. Amen to that. Sure does. That's nice. That makes happy. 
Uh, and this is an interesting one that took me a little bit to uh, wrestle around, but in Romans 14, so sort of this new thing in the church age, uh, keeping your faith between you and the Lord instead of expressing it in a spirit of liberty to the detriment, the spiritual detriment of a brother or sister in the Lord, that can make you happy. The Bible calls that man blessed. So right off the bat, we want to help understand that fatherhood is not equivalent to happiness. Okay, If you're looking for happiness, uh, I'm not sure. You know, fatherhood's going to provide a lot of emotion, and certainly happiness punctuates it. But uh, in terms of you know, that being the goal and destination, we want to be careful of that. Uh, there are certainly other things that can aid in that. We also want to note that, uh, that fatherhood in the scriptures is not expressed in biological terms alone. It doesn't do that. It's true that scripture clearly acknowledges fatherhood as a function of having biological children. Think all the genealogical lists in the Old Testament. There certainly is a biological component there. It also, however, indicates fatherhood in a much more meaningful, deeper, and spiritual sense. Fatherhood in this sense is the property of men like the Apostle Paul. It's already mentioned in Sunday school. Uh, Philemon 10, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul had no biological children, but he had many sons in the faith, and I'm sure daughters in the faith. It is in this sense that all men under the sound of my voice ought to strive. Interestingly, it is a sense that Paul highlights in the only direct address to fathers of biological children. What he's interested in is not so much the biology. What he's interested in is the spiritual nature of fatherhood. And he stresses that in Ephesians 6.4. Well, why? Well, perhaps it could be said that fathers of biological children can easily lose the spiritual sense in the wake of just trying to provide a roof over the head of a child and food on the table. Men, we know that. It's hard. It's toilsome. Genesis reminds us that this is part of the curse. And if they're not careful, uh, they live for the physical only and not for the spiritual or perhaps it is because it is the natural consequence of a father's new life in Christ. Uh, we were arguing that the New Testament sort of highlights the spiritual nature of fatherhood. And, and Ephesians, in fact, highlights in Ephesians 2 a new creation. And as a natural outworking of this new creation, you have new interests as a father. And that's in the spiritual nature of your relationship uh, to your children. But having said all of that, and here's our proposition this morning. Fatherhood, as God intended, God intended it to be, progressively matures in the Holy Spirit's interests in fatherhood. Chose those words carefully. I'll say it again. Fatherhood, as God intended, progressively matures in the Holy Spirit's interests in fatherhood. So, so God, and particularly the Holy Spirit, in this new in Christ reality, has some interests, has some values. These interests are available to all men here at Grace. So men, as you view your primary disciples who live under your own roof, or the ones you kind of dodge in the church lobby as they come running around, right? They may not necessarily be living under your roof. As you think about these little ones, 
What does it mean to desire to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? All the while not exasperating them. I mean, this verse to some degree plagues me or plagued me as a father. Not in a bad way, but certainly wondering, well, I know what I'm not to do. I'm not to exasperate them. And I'm to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There's not a whole lot of data there. There's not a whole lot of, like, uh, do this, do this, do this, don't do this and this. We just have sort of this, this, this uh, paradigm. Uh, a, com- a, a commentator that I enjoy reading reminds us that this idea of considering the feelings of children, not exasperating them, was a revolutionary idea in its day. In the first century Roman Empire, fathers could do pretty much what they liked in their families. They could even sentence family members to death. The gospel, however, as it, is so, as it so often must, breaks through that ridiculous reality and commands fathers in Christ to a new reality. So this morning I want to unpack some concepts that will help us as fathers to understand what it means not to be exasperating to our children, both biological and spiritual, and what it means to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So point number one, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, keeping that Ephesians 6 is sort of our core text. But 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, our context is really the, the articulation of what is known as the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant. Um, for those of us who are familiar with our Bible, we understand that. For those of us not so much, um, uh, briefly explained, uh, David in this passage uh, had a desire to build a permanent place for Jehovah. Right heretofore, God's place was in the tabernacle. This was a, a temporary tent of meeting, and it would be taken apart, and, and it would be dragged along the backside of the wilderness, and was sort of the, uh, the, the central location in which the nation of Israel would gather around. And, um, and David, now being settled as a king, as a king after God's own heart, toward the end of his life, Longs to make a permanent place for Jehovah to settle. Um, Jehovah, however, as he so often does, the God of the Bible, uh, this covenant name for God, he turns the table. And and essentially what Jehovah says here is, David, you know, you, you want to make my name sort of permanent here, in in this earth by giving me a a house, a real house that I can dwell in called the temple. But you know what? I've never asked for that. You can read that in the text. I've never longed for that. In fact, I've never secretly gone and told somebody other than yourself that I would kind of really like that. You see, David, the, 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 the idea of putting a place on this earth that gives me some level of perpetuity is theologically ridiculous, right? God needs no human-made place to sort of ensure his perpetuity, right? (laughs) But so David says, God kind of appreciates that heart of David. He turns the table. He says, however, David, on the other hand, you do. Unlike me, you're temporal. 
Unlike me, your influence will diminish. What I want to do is I want to make a unilateral covenant with you, David, that is going to take the question of your royal dynastic uh, place and right on the throne of Judah. I want to take the, 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 the heretofore kind of, oh, is that going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And I want to permanentize that. And, and he tells David about this, this permanent, dynastic, royal house that God is going to ensure for him. And that brings us to really this, this, this point about how God is going to maintenance that. And we come down really into, uh, uh, in verse 11 uh, there, uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you uh, who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. Now we're probably talking specifically out of that royal dynasty, Solomon. Um, I will establish uh, the throne of his kingdom forever. Perhaps it's messianic as well. Remember, Jesus will come from the loins of David. Ultimately, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will what? Probably speaking more of Solomon now. I will discipline him with a rod of men and with strokes of sons of mankind. But my favor shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all of this vision, so Nathan spoke it to David. So we have this, this perpetuity, and we have an understanding here of how God was going to go about dealing with David's house. And it's in the context of this concept of being a father, of being a father. So, so I'm going to derive a point, sort of reverse engineer, as many of these father passages are, uh, the truth that a father's loyal love corrects his son even with rod and strokes when necessary. Even with rod and strokes. So he's corrective. A father, it's okay to be corrective, Dad. It's okay to be corrective even in a punitive sense when it's necessary. So can we all take a deep breath? talk about that a little bit from this passage we read it there God is going to discipline the house of David even with the rod of men and with strokes at times and we know how that played out uh, the son here uh, in our text we've mentioned in that but but the focus is really this love but my favor in verse 15 shall not depart from him. The, the, the word favor here is that word some of us are familiar with chesed, and, and it has to do more not just with love, but with a loyal, enduring love, with a love that will not let go. And it's this opportunity that fathers have, really parents together, and father as, as, as illustrated in this text, as it represents the God of heaven, we have this ability well, what makes love loyal? What makes love loyal is when love refuses to look the other way and excuse sin. Sin that damages and destroys. In part, love is loyal when correction is needed, even with punitive measures, if necessary, dads. 
It's okay. Uh, it's one thing to love children. It's, it's another thing to be loyal in that love. Loyalty comes not in all the yeses. Loyalty is expressed in the difficult no word and, and how we're going to go about, by God's grace, insisting that our child remains on the path that will perhaps bring him the most possibility for flourishing. So fathers and the gals who support them, we must get past this notion that love, loyal love, is somehow void of punitive measures. Of course, there are strict limits on those measures in Scripture. We are not God. Men, your muscle and your mouth must never be the energy of the punitive measure required by loyal love. However, within the biblical guidelines, it must be argued that punitive measures are what move love beyond mere sentiment into God-like loyalty in love. This is what makes God's love outstanding. He would not be refused, even as he pursues justice in the universe. He requires the death of his own son. He would not be refused. Now, I'm not saying, dads, we have all that energy or all that ability, but we do reflect loyal love. And we're having to say no to our kids. And we even sometimes have to be punitive in those measures to make sure and to insist that our children remain on the path to human flourishing. Uh, this love presses its objects to... Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. I commend 12 verses 1 through 13. That's the whole idea here. And it's interesting, again... Uh, this idea of being willing to even have punitive measures was intuitive in the day of the author of Hebrews, and he employs it uh, to say, look, if you're a father, you discipline your son, your real sons. You do that. Uh, you don't discipline the sons that are probably yours, but you're not interested in. in that Roman culture it was his point. No, you discipline, you're, and you discipline them. That's the difference. That's the difference. So if dads, we've got to be encouraged. We, we can't have a permissive love. We can't have a, just merely a love of convenience. Uh, we want to permit things. We want to allow our children to enjoy convenient things. But it can't merely be that. A love that centers more around your own self-interests. It can't be that either. right? We need that long-term commitment the long-term to care for and, and really guide and direct our children uh, as we're able. So may God help us men to progressively understand that love becomes loyal love in those difficult moments. And that is something to aspire to, to progressively grow in, to get better at by God's grace. So not exasperating children and bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord ironically does include discipline even though our kids would say no 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 <laughs> you know dad that exasperates me well we have a higher authority here dear loved one um, so ironically it, it does include discipline even punitive when necessary and believe it or not I know we're a, we're a culture who loves the science right and uh, science supports this it's, uh, social sciences studies indicate that the factor that, that causes rage in teenagers more than any other 
is having to face life without adequate direction and correction uh, from their parents. They're just sort of left out there to kind of figure it out aimlessly. So if our first point uh, uh, deals with the idea of correction, our second point here is one of commitment. A father sets a clear direction for his home to serve the Lord. Uh, We find this truth in Joshua chapter 24. So let's turn there, Joshua chapter 24. Really the whole uh, uh, 1 through 15. Um, Unpacking this idea of what it means not to exasperate. What does it mean to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Well... It means correction for sure. Here's our second point. It means, Dad, setting a clear direction for your home to serve the Lord. For your home to serve the Lord. There we read it in verse number 14. Now, therefore, the fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity. This is a message to the nation of Israel. Uh, This young generation in the promised land now. Serve him in sincerity and truth and do away with the gods which your father served beyond the the, the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, Joshua's commitment is based on an understanding that God has done something great and breathtaking. Something that was incomparable to any of the other gods that were options in the day for this young nation. So much more great. Incomparable to any other competitor to the affections And the longings of this new young generation. To have a true hero, somebody to worship, if you will. Hero worship. Joshua is arguing that God himself has created them. And that there is no other worthy hero. Look at verses 1 through 13. I mean, you can go through all of this. Verse 3, I took your father Abraham. Verse 4, I gave Jacob and Esau. Uh, 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 and I gave the Mount Seir verse 5 I sent Moses I sent the plagues I did in the midst and brought you out I brought you out I brought your fathers out of Egypt I put darkness between you and the Egyptians I brought you into the land of the Amorites and through them through the land I, I handed them over to you Them. I eliminated them I was not willing to listen to Balaam I saved you I handed them over to you, your enemies. I sent the hornets before you. Verse number 12. And it drove out two kings. Could you imagine seeing that, you military veterans? Sitting back on your weapons and just laughing as hornets chase the enemy away. This is what God does. These are the breathtaking, real things. In verse 13, I gave you the land. I did that. I did that. What Joshua is saying is just so rational. He's saying, if that is true, and it is absolutely true, 
then I as a father in my home only have one option. Me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Why? Because any other choice puts my family on the losing team. And what kind of leader is that, my friend? That's a bad leader. How many of you agree with that? If you know where the winning team is, dads, get your family up and on there. Solidify that truth in your mind. God is the worthy hero of your household. God is. God has no equal and tolerates no rival. This is why we dedicate our families to worship and serve the Lord exclusively, dads. This is why we control the remote control. This is why we reckon the phones. This is why we, we, we work with the culture of the world that's pressing in upon our children and our homes. This is why. Because God is amazing. He always wins. And we want to be on his team. That's why. It's the only rational thing to do as a father. Dads, you don't have to, do, you don't have to be brilliant. You do not have to have degrees. But man, you've got to get this. Get your family on the winning team. Get them to church. Be faithful in that. Can you do that? I think you can. Give them access to the truth of the Bible where God has revealed himself. Give your kids a chance for their affections to be owned by this massive hero called God who has no equal and tolerates no rival. God is the only one worthy of hero status, men. The only one. The only one worthy of your attention in that sense and worship. Lest you think Joshua had quite a list of amazing things. Oh, dear church, let me tell you a thing or two. Man, do we have so much more. <laughs> they have nothing compared to us. May I remind you, the church owns the greatest, most breathtaking of all events and acts of God he has ever done. And that's creation out of nothing included. We own something greater. God has done in Jesus Christ the absolute unthinkable. God came and walked among us. We own that, Emmanuel. God with us. We own that. Jesus' life the cross, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that guarantees the words of 1 Corinthians 15. Amen. And your future status as ruler of the world guarantees it. Gathering of the Gentiles. We who are not a people, we are now a people, folks, awash in the blessed hope Oh, man, that's better than watching hornets chase kings away. <laughs> it is. It is. My friends, an atonement accomplished and applied. We live in that era. Wow. We live in the era that prophets longed to know and to see. Man, we've got it all. This is the greatest of all acts, the work and life of Jesus. Jesus is the only hero worthy of heroic status. This is why we resolve 
dads, that me and my house, we are going to be on the trajectory of serving and worshiping the Lord. And we're going to work hard at growing in that. Now you get, you know, our children have to make their own decisions, and I appreciate that, Dad. But you, your responsibility is clear here. It's clear. Number three, so if we're to correct, right, and, and commit, that would be our second point. We at least know those two things mean those contribute to not exasperating children and bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And maybe a little bit of irony in some of those that I've got to correct and I've got to commit. Number three here, a father knows how to give good gifts to his children. Pastor Mike referenced this in, in, uh, in Sunday school this morning our time together as we uh, meditated on biblical manhood. Uh, but Matthew chapter 7, uh, go there please for our third point. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks rece receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or what person is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf of bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? So if you, dis so if you despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In our two previous points, uh, we could say that those were part of our defensive strategy, right? I was a basketball coach. You know, you had to have your defensive strategy, zone or man-to-man. -man. You know, maybe correction is man-to-man. -man. You know, you got to be man-to-man -man on those kids. They're all individual. They're all going to take different kind of correction, but you got to commit to, to that. And then, you know, then, then our team philosophy is whatever. Maybe that's the uh, Joshua. We're going to serve and worship the Lord. We're going to play defense, <laughs> you know. In this point, we might argue that this is a good offensive strategy, dads, and maybe isn't quite as intuitive. At least for me, it maybe is not as intuitive. For some dads, I think it is, but, but for others of us, uh, we're good at defense. Offense, on the other hand, can be a bit of a challenge. Um, so this is how we break out of saying the required no all the time. I don't know, dads, if you ever felt that. And like all the time I'm saying no, 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 no. Try to say it in different volumes. No, no, no. Or I try to say it with a little bit of melody in it. No, no. You know, just for some variety. But there's a lot of no's in being a father, right? Well, here's a tremendous yes. And I want you to get it. Because if I have a regret in being a father, this would be it. This would be it. Spent a lot of time figuring out, you know, what I needed to say no to. But, 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 but I, I, I should have spent more time saying yes or, or trying to forget it. And again, or figure it out. Again, this is reverse engineer. Jesus argues from what was intuitive at the time about a good father to make his point about our heavenly father. Knowing how to give good gifts and doing so in a way, and can I say this, here's the key, that is referenceable. Jesus referenced a good deed or a good idea. Dad, your, your, your goodness to your children needs to be referenceable. In that sense, it should be memorable, maybe. You know, something you planned for, and executed. And 
referenceable, I would argue, and in line with the heart of what is good. What is good? You know, fathers, I would encourage you to think a long, a long time. Think about, for a long time, giving good gifts to your children. You know, the Bible teaches us that a wise man gives an inheritance to his children's children. That, that's a good thing. You need to think long about that and how to do that. You know, how to bypass your biological kids and get to the grandkids. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we want to give them all encouragement as best we can. Uh, but that's a, a point of wisdom. Here, I'm emphasizing the idea of good gifts and thinking about it. So many factors can thrust this into the back of your mind or truncate it. The idea of planning for good, of, of, of seeking good. Please note that the nature of the gift is not the most expensive or the most amazing or the one that gets the most likes on social media. That's not it. The nature of the gift is that it is good. Most general word for good in the Greek. It's good. It's morally good. It, 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 so it, has, it can be quantified as good by father and child alike. In other words, it's a general category that all could see. It has that idea. Sometimes it, it, it will, we understand from the passage that a child don't always, won't always see necessarily the good of it, but eventually will confess that it was good, we hope, as they grow and mature. We understand that from the passage. God knows best what is good. We know as recipients of God's good gifts, they don't always track exactly with what we want or when we want it, but it is incontrovertible. God's gifts are good. And he has given them time and time again. They're referenceable. They're rememberable. How are you doing, Dad? Maybe you need to do a little bit more thinking on some good things for your kids. Many of you do very well at this. So thankful for that as a children's pastor, hearing kids taking amazing vacations and they're enjoying that and and uh, they have good referenceable fun times. I for my dad it was always golfing and eating food and walking in creeks and all kinds of things. He was a master at planning for good. I'm so grateful for that. Number 4 and our final point here so if we have commit, or I'm sorry, if we have correct, the second, commit. Our third word, we gift. That was a good word, a gift, good things. And our final one here, a father is ready and eager to forgive and restore. He encourages family members to do the same. This is Luke 15. Take your Bibles, go to Luke 15, verses 11 and 12. For those of you that are familiar with your New Testament, this is that famous parable of the prodigal son. The father of the prodigal. I'll let you read that. I'm going to comment on it here. You know, the father of the prodigal son, I would argue, is legendary. You know, he's sort of that legendary father status for so many reasons. But again, he was somebody that Jesus could reference in a story, in a historical account, so it wasn't that he was outside the bounds of reality. However, uh, he certainly was wise. You know, if gals, you see the mothering prowess of the ideal Proverbs 31 woman a bit intimidating at times, well, we men look at the prodigal son's father uh, as, as a bit intimidating as well. 
And here's where those seeking to father on a deeper spiritual level um, are going to be challenged. Again, this is a historic account. It is information not prescribed per se, but described in such a way by the Holy Spirit that it leaves a desire in born-again hearts of men to want to be like this guy. I don't know about you, and I think it's, it's, it's natural reading of the text, I want to be like this guy. Right? It's not prescribed to be like this guy, but it's, I believe, principally there for us to seek to replicate. And it's interesting, this prodigal father, the son of the prodigal, he deals with two different kinds of children. Dads, how many of you would argue at least have two different kinds of children if you have more than one child? Very confusing for me as a father. You know what I mean? I mean, I can think one track, oh, the second one, no way. And then the, God gave us a third, and he wasn't even like the other two. I mean, so nothing seems to ever carry over, you know, in that sense. So it's, it's a bit of a challenge. The prodigal father, the father of the prodigal, and the jealous son, we would argue, had two different kinds of children. And he worked hard at not exasperating either. Do you see that in, in the parable? I mean, one comes, I mean, if, if, a, if one of my sons would come to me and say, Dad, I want my inheritance, I would say, go fly a kite. You know, that would have been my bad day. My good day would have been, son, I don't think it's a real good idea right now. I think you're a little too young, and you have a little bit too much energy, and so I'm going to you know, I'll put it in savings or something. You know, or I would have said something like that. But this father, for whatever reason, perhaps the son was of age and it's a little more culturally normative to do these kinds of things, but he, he doesn't exacerbate that son. And then when he's dealing with the jealous son later on in the context, he handles that son with the same love, encouragement. He doesn't shy away from either child. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Child one's having a bad day. I think I'll scoot around and <laughs> let mom take care of him. Because I don't have the time. That's sad. I got to get to work. And I, I have the ability. I can be a little adjusting in my work. You, some of you men don't. My, my dad never did. Most of you don't. I have probably a little more liberty and freedom in that regard. Um, so I didn't, he didn't shy away from either child. He embodies understanding fatherhood in a much more meaningful, deeper spiritual sense. Much can be said of the prodigal son's father, not the least of which he remains nameless. The whole world, regrettably, in my book, identifies him as the father of the prodigal. <laughs> Would you like that, gentlemen? Forget your name. Forget everything you're trying to do. You're the father of the prodigal. Now, what makes that wonderful, and I think we would all embrace in this particular case, is because that son was returned, and he was fully restored of his prodigal nature. And we would probably embrace that, too, and wear that as a badge of honor. But his identity is lost in the challenges of his sons. It has well been said that fathers are responsible for the disposition of home, I would argue, in church. My pastor used to teach that. He challenged the men. Look, men, when I walk into your homes, if it's a place of great tension and uh, problem and issue, um, I, dads, you've got to step it up a little bit. We've got we to handle the disposition of home. And, and he said, by extension, the church is the same way. We're a loving church. Yes, we have loving women, but we need loving men. We need loving men. 
Father who creates a disposition of joyful forgiveness like this man did, an excited restoration, right? There's, there is, there's not just the acts of forgiveness and restoration. There are adverbs. You want to be a dad of adverbs. You want to do it excitingly. Party about it. You want, you want adverbs to garnish your fatherhood. Good adverbs. Don't just want to be the dad of the verb. You know, you want to be a little adjective-y daddy and you know, do a little bit of, of that kind of thing. He's, he's, he's doing amazing things. He's joyful in his forgiveness. He's running out. He's hugging the neck of, you know, you know, doing all the things that teenagers hate. He's doing it, you know, because he doesn't care. You know, he's just having a good old time. This man places himself, if, if, if you are willing to pursue the disposition of your home this way, you, dad, will place yourself squarely in the footprints of this father of a prodigal son and a jealous son. He clearly delineates the pain of compassion, this father does, the forgiveness, that forgiveness needs to couple with restitution. He delineates that. And he really delineates what's worthy of celebration. And what he insists on. He says, we must celebrate your brother's return. Because well, he was dead, now he's alive. Son, if you don't get that, my jealous son, I've swung and missed at the easiest softball in your character. And I'm so sorry for that, but we must celebrate this now. Um, so can I say, men, uh, whether we're correcting whether we're committing, whether we're gifting, or whether we're defining the disposition in our home. And I encourage you with this, that all of that, fatherhood progressively matures in those things. These are the Holy Spirit's priorities in fatherhood. You know, some of you are trying to figure out fatherhood all out on your own. I would encourage you not to do that. We've got good godly men around here that can help. We've shared with you four principles here to help you understand what not exasperating and bringing up in the nurture and admonition may look like. Remember, if you're a father, there's people around here that are grand at that. And there's people around here that are great, great and grand at that. So we're here to help. If we can, I'm sure we can tell you what not to do. <laughs> we're good at that. You not always know what to do. Um... You know, one of the things that fathers do is, is in replication of God, is, is we, we, uh, we provide and protect. Um, we really provide and protect along the question of justice. And uh, God has done that. And I appeal to those of you who don't know the, Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning. You're left to father as best you can. That's a difficult way to go. In common grace, you may be able to acclimate to some of these things I'm saying, but generally you're going to miss the heart of it all and the genius of it all to see giving your children an opportunity to be in heaven. Not that they, they have to choose that for themselves, but as a dad, um, you know, we'd encourage you, dad, uh, who doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, to really consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, what he's done, you know, he's done more for just children 
He's done for you, Dad. Uh, the Bible describes people who don't know Jesus with the words like lost. If you feel lost this morning, you need Jesus Christ. The Bible describes people who don't have Jesus Christ, who are, they're laboring, they're heavy laden, they are without rest. If those adjectives press into your soul, know Jesus Christ is the answer. Once and for all, he died on the cross to satisfy God's wrath and can I put it this way? For your criminal reality. Your criminal reality is you violated the moral law of God who's holy. God indwells heaven. Heaven operates in holiness. And you can't go there having violated his law. It just isn't going to happen. But God so loved the world. Justice kisses mercy we're known he knows we know him as a father right fathers love to have mercy he sent his son jesus to die on the cross rise again from the dead and jesus offers to you his life for your life he wants you to repent of your sin put your faith and trust in jesus alone for that forgiveness that he satisfied god's wrath on the cross required a bloody death and then, and, then, and then he wants your life. He wants to give you eternal life. He wants to be the boss in your life. And you need that, friend. This life is too short to try to figure it out on your own. You need Christ. The Bible says we do that at the beginning of our spiritual life. We don't have to wait and work it out and hope and hope and hope. And when we get to the end, you know, we hope. No, we can enjoy that at the beginning, that confidence and that assurance that I am in Christ. What a joy. All right, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together. Uh, we rejoice in the truths that we've shared. Father, we understand fatherhood because it first exists in you and your mercy. You wanted us to know you as Father, all of your creation. We're so grateful for that. And pray that as we learn lessons from your fatherhood, lessons of being a dad who's willing to be loyal and love to his children and correct them, even punitively when necessary, or, or to be a dad who uh, um, commits, uh, works the whole schedule of his family, orients it into the direction of loving and worshiping God as best we can, or gifting our children, Lord, thinking about good things. Uh, just like you do, Father, uh, in giving us. We want to be men who replicate that and think about that more, or plan for that better. And, and then finally, uh, we want to be like that legendary Father, the, and control the disposition, define the disposition of our homes well. Mercy and grace and restitution and forgiveness, Lord. Help us, we pray. We thank you for all these good things. For those who don't know Christ here, we pray that they came with somebody that they would investigate further just the love of God and the person of Jesus. And uh, may they uh, come to know you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.